Welcome to Utopian Horizons. Hello and welcome to Utopian Horizons, a podcast where I cover a different utopia, dystopia, utopian thinker or movement in each episode. In this episode, we're going to be talking about uh, a film that I was very much into uh, when it came out, which is, as you'll know by the start of this episode, um, The Matrix from 1999, starring Keanu Reeves, uh, Carrie-Anne Moss, uh, Lawrence Fishburne, Hugo Weaving, among others, um, directed by the Wachowskis. As I'm going to be talking about with my guest, um, it's a film that had a big impact in terms of the influence it had, its success, kind of the cultural impact that it had. Um, I think it's an interesting, um, for reasons that we'll discuss, it's an interesting example of a dystopia, partly because of the way it falls between certain genres which we'll talk about and also um, we've talked before in this show about uh, dystopias as a critical force like the critical potential of dystopias I think one of the things that makes this interesting is the kind of um, you might say lack of focus uh, or uh, opaqueness about its its target and what it's aiming for it's the degree to which is certain about what it's aiming for um, as, as a dystopia that's making some kind of critique. Uh, again, we'll, we'll get into that and uh, try and provide some kind of explanation. Yeah, uh, I'm sure it's a film a lot of you will be familiar with and it'll be, it, it was a fun one to talk about. And uh, yeah, of course, they're making a new one, uh, which is the, supposed to come out in a couple of years or so. I don't know. Uh, ha- having watched this as well, I think I mentioned this at the end of the last episode, but I did have the 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 brief um, desire to cover the Animatrix on the Patreon, uh, as in the the collection of short animated films they released uh, after the success of, of the Matrix. Um, thought that might be fun to cover on the Patreon. I don't know uh, if you think I should do that. Then please let me know on Twitter at Utopian Horizons or email me on utopianhorizonspod at gmail.com. I suppose while I'm talking about that, if you'd like to support this podcast and, and help me to continue doing doing it and do more of it, then head over to patreon.com slash utopianhorizons where you can get access to bonus episodes on um, capitalist realism, which I've just finished the run through of uh, various episodes of anime, video games, um, yeah, all sorts of stuff. You can have a browse and see if there's, if there's anything on there that takes your fancy. Um I had a look today. It's difficult to check this because just the way that reviews work on iTunes and stuff. Um, I think I've only had one review this year. I mean, come on. Surely this podcast deserves more than that. Uh, if if you are enjoying this and you could take a minute to review this on Apple Podcasts or iTunes or whatever, uh, give me those five stars. That would be really, really appreciated. Helps to... Uh, make it more visible and helps to helps more people to find it um so yeah that would be fantastic uh if we could bump up that one uh review this year then that would be cool okay so back to the subject at hand my guest for this episode is Anna McFarlane from the University of Glasgow if you've been listening to this podcast for a long time you would have heard her before if not and uh, if you like what you hear on this one, go back and check out the other ones that Anna's been on. She came on to talk about Neuromancer. Um, that was quite early, I think. That was a, a good episode. Um, she came on to talk about the film Strange Days. She appeared in the Utopia Music episode that I've done. So, yeah, uh, if you enjoy the, the chat with Anna t- today, then go and check those out. There there are good episodes as well. Um I think we I think we plugged some stuff of hers at the end of the episode. I don't think we mentioned her Twitter. So if you want to follow her, then it's uh, Marietta Rosetta on Twitter. That's uh, double T, yeah, double T, double T, Marietta Rosetta. As is a theme of almost every episode, I feel like I had something else to say, but I don't know. I just got back from holiday today. 
took probably about eight hours or something uh, in the car. So if I forget something, forgive me. That's just my commitment uh, back uh, after that long journey and straight on to doing the podcast. That's enough of me chatting, I think, onto my conversation with Anna about The Matrix. Joining me now is Dr. Anna McFarlane from the University of Glasgow. Uh, thank you very much for joining me, Anna. Thanks, Paul, for inviting me. So you actually have the record now for most appearances on Utopian Horizons. Oh, official friend of the podcast. Yeah, you've uh, overtaken Sean McTiernan, who you were drawing with. So it's a pretty big honour, I think. I think um, so. I'll take that. Yeah. Um, so... Today we're going to be talking about The Matrix, a film from 1999, which is directed by the Wachowskis. When I when I was uh, first thinking about us doing this, I just kind of thought, "Oh, it's The Matrix." Like everyone knows what The Matrix is, but I, then I realised that it's like 20 years old, mm-hmm. um, which to me, it, <laughs> yeah. I guess I was just realised, oh yeah, I'm quite old now. Like maybe some people won't really know. I, I don't know. Uh, so The Matrix definitely was um, really, really... So the, the reason I talk about it like that is because it was really um, impactful at the time. It was a really significant film. Uh, like it had a big cultural impact. So for me, it was just obvious that everyone knows about The Matrix and, and what it is. But I don't know. Maybe we need to talk about that a bit to explain to people maybe there's some younger people who haven't seen it I don't know what's your sense do you think everyone knows what the matrix is I I was thinking about this as well because you know obviously you know teaching at university you sometimes think about that when you're setting something for a class you'd be like oh is everyone going to probably watch this in their own time and is this a pointless thing to set and then you'll you'll set it and they'll all just be like what is this I've never heard this before I think the matrix falls somewhere between those two things because it has had such a long such a deep cultural impact that's still ongoing that I think people would probably know it through memes even if they haven't seen it originally but mm. yeah and I there's a few points as well that I wondered about how we responded to it because I think we're quite similar in age as well so I think it maybe had a similar formative impact on us I get that impression so it would be really interesting to hear what younger people think about it as well if they've seen it yeah I mean it- yeah, I definitely thought it was very cool at the time. Um, I still think it's cool, um, but it, it had a certain uh, it had a certain idea of cool about it, and it 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 kind of felt like it hit, hit kind of zeitgeist or something. I don't know, but I mean, it was really so. Obviously, the, the film was a huge success, and then there were video games of it. There was like a documentary um, about the making of it. There were obviously the sequels. There was the um animatrix which was like a spin-off um of uh like animated shorts like expanding the universe and all this stuff so yeah that that kind of gives you gives you an idea of um the the impact it had i'm going to give a really really short synopsis just in case anyone has no idea i think people probably do but this is a film about um a kind of a computer a computer simulated reality that everybody lives in but is unaware of and there's a few people who've managed to kind of break outside um to the real world which is like the real world's been completely destroyed by a war between humans and machines and the, the main character is kind of being awoken from this computer simulation and they are like a chosen one who's gonna fight back against the system that's basically the matrix um maybe we should start off perhaps talking about some of the the kind of influences that the film has and and the kind of genre and style of it uh what would be the kind of things that stand out to you there um well to me as somebody who's written and thought about literally cyberpunk quite a lot i suppose you know the term the matrix it's used in william gibson's novel neuromancer it's something that kind of was kicking about in these days of the early cyberpunk. It's just a cool word to describe an online virtual reality, like the space of the internet before that space was, as we would understand it today. So I think even that term, the matrix, just comes straight out of cyberpunk and that idea of this space as somewhere that's cool, um, somewhere that's a battleground potentially between the brave individual and the rampant corporations, 
yeah, that's definitely a part of it in my mind of coming straight out of cyberpunk culture. I think it's a bit of a pastiche of loads of different ideas from cyberpunk books and maybe film as well, like something like Blade Runner. Mm. It, it definitely kind of in a different way like it doesn't have like the so you know obviously cyberpunk has this thing of like taking like a japanese influence um we obviously tend to think about neon lights and stuff like that the matrix doesn't have neon lights all over the place but it, it definitely does have a what you might i guess an eastern influence um in terms of so i was reading about it the, the Rakowskis explicitly referenced like ghost in a shell the anime mm-hmm. and there's definitely like um a, a there's uh i think this this I, I might be wrong but this film i think popularized like a hong kong style choreography like mm-hmm. as in hong kong cinema like they used i'm pretty sure they used the the choreography team from hong kong uh that kind of like martial arts choreography that you see uh yeah it kind of became a thing after the matrix i think yeah i think you're right there and yeah and that and i think that that's just been so influential since then as well like i was thinking about john wick and the fact that that i think that was the choreography team that worked on the matrix or a couple of the guys from that that ended up directing those films so you can right. see how they've almost like kind of just made that style front and center there they've stripped away everything else but that kind of martial arts choreography and just made it into a fantastic action film. Yeah, the other the other thing where it had a that was like a big deal at the time was like the bullet time thing. Mm-hmm. So that I don't know how to describe that. They like this is where the the where it kind of goes in slow motion and the um, the camera kind of circles round, which they did. I think they 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 didn't do it with like. I don't know. They they did it by like setting up like rings of cameras around people. Uh, that was like a big, like the technological, the technology of the way the film was produced was like a big thing that people talked about, which is kind of a strange thing. Uh, and I guess that had an influence as well. Yeah, I think so. I think it was very influential for yeah for filmmakers. But then also there's I think with bullet time it's so fascinating the way that it is crossing that divide between the art of cinema and the themes of the film as well. It's just such a great way of the the form reflecting the content that I think that that's why it captures the imagination so much. And obviously, even if you've not seen The Matrix, you'll have seen, I'm sure you'll have seen kind of piss takes of that bullet time repeated everywhere because it was just so popular and so well thought of at the time. Yeah, I'm just thinking as well, it's kind of fitting that that's uh, a big... That was like a, a big video games thing as well, which kind of fits with the themes. I'm just Googling to see when Max Payne came out because that, uh, 2001. So yeah, that that's like that kind of slow motion thing and like panning around um, definitely crossed over into video games as well. Yeah, I uh, think that's one of the things with, you know, you were saying about how like they had the animatrix, the animated films and they've had video hmm. games and things like that as well. I think that's one of the reasons why it's so popular too, because it does occupy that space that some like it is a film, but it's really engaged with computers to that level that it's almost crossing that divide between film and video games. And I think that's a sign of the kind of transmedia landscape that we were moving into at the time that maybe wasn't so big at that point. Hundred mm, um, percent. So I think there's. In terms of like the the style of the film, there's so I don't, I don't, so there's definitely a noir influence, or you could so you could call it a noir influence, or you could so we've obviously already mentioned cyberpunk, which is obviously noir's already an influence on cyberpunk. So whether you want to think of it as explicitly a noir influence or a continuation of like what cyberpunk was already doing, there's a lot of shots, um, particularly early on. Where there's that whole police chase, uh, where the police are, and agents are chasing Trinity. We get kind of shots looking down into the alleyway, some shots like looking up at staircase, which look very, very, very noir. Um, so, yeah, that's definitely uh, an influence on it. Yeah, I mean, do, do you think that sort of just comes through the, the cyberpunk influence? Like, do, do you think of this as a cyberpunk text i I totally do i totally do think it's um yeah i i absolutely do like in some i suppose like kind of closer to the time of the film's release maybe it was thought of like oh this is like a hollywoodization of cyberpunk it's kind of moving away from the real deal but i think Mm. now from this distance 
you can see that it's just another aspect of how powerful cyberpunk's been for helping us to think about how we deal with the internet and how important it is in our societies. So I think it, I definitely think of it as like a core cyberpunk text now. And I think what you're saying about the noirish kind of um, influences, because obviously they're trying to evoke a contemporary America. They're not trying to make it futuristic. So it has to be in mm. some ways recognizable as it could be happening right now. Um, so they, yeah, like you said, they don't go down the whole kind of neon 3D advertisements, holograms kind of road. But I think the darkness of it, the rain, the, there are there are colours and the lights as well. And there, there's especially a scene where they take Neo into the car and they're about to take a bug out of his belly, which is literally like a gross scorpion robot thing mm. that they're about to suck out of his belly button. And the rain mm. is falling down the, the, the window panes of the car and it's just lit by this green light and makes it look exactly like the the glyphs of data that um, I think they call it like data rain. It's just these green glowing numerals that flow down the screen that represents the data of the matrix. So it's almost this way of presenting the real world, but in a way that it's always hinting at that underlying data and the underlying virtualness of this reality that we're seeing on screen. So I think it's uh, yeah. really cool from that perspective. Also, what you're saying about the police chase scene, did it not remind you as well of um, when we were talking about Strange Days and there's that scene right at the very start where there's like a, a robber breaking into a restaurant and he's, he ends up climbing up some stairs and he jumps off the building, but he falls to his death in that film because we've yeah. got a POV shot of what he's up to. And in this scene, Trinity makes the jump. She gets to the other side. So it almost felt to me like, yeah, they're acknowledging that kind of science fiction, cyberpunk legacy in film, but they're saying this has taken it a step beyond. Like we saw somebody die falling off a building before. Now let's see what happens when they make it, when they can not just use virtual reality, but like take over what we see around us. I think that's a really cool little little link. I, who knows if that was self-conscious, but it certainly felt so to me watching it having spoken to you about Strange Days and that's so long ago. Yeah, no, I hadn't thought of that until you just mentioned it. It, it definitely, yeah, definitely makes sense what you're saying about as well. Like, uh, it kind, of, it kind of makes sense, I guess, that the noir influence of cyberpunk would come for come through more obviously because, yeah, as you say, they're trying to make it like real world, so they can't do like the futuristic aspects for that section of the film. So, yeah, it kind of makes sense that noir kind of comes to the fore a bit more, maybe. Right, let's talk a bit about the the kind of the, the film's got a very um, specific idea of what's um, cool. I think mm-hmm. in terms of like the the way that people dress. I mean, this is definitely straight out of cyberpunk as as well. But it's uh, it's unusual to see it. Yeah, I guess in a location where there's not all this neon everywhere, like the le- long leather jackets and everyone wears sunglasses all the time. <laughs> yeah, there's there's definitely a kind of a like an S&M vibe. It reminds me a lot of the Nine Inch Nails concert that, you know, you would see people dress like that. And and I suppose because we're introduced to this, like the, the club scene at the start, before we're introduced to many of the, the main characters we're going to go on to meet. But yeah, everyone's dressed in this like, kind of tight leather. Yeah, to be honest, like maybe this is me just getting a bit older. It looks so uncomfortable to me now. But uh, <laughs> at the time, it was the height of cool. You didn't really think about how people would smell dressed like that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's it's a way of tapping into subcultures, isn't it? It's, I think it's a way of looking at subcultures, thinking what's cool about these environments. And you want to welcome that audience into this really niche imaginary subculture and I think that bondage and metal and those kind of things are a good shorthand way to do that I think that's partly why it's so successful it makes you feel like you're quite cool too because you're getting invited into this club you're getting invited into these secrets yeah for sure okay maybe we should uh maybe we should talk um about the matrix itself yeah quite a broad uh subject to talk about but how do you see the way that the the matrix so the the matrix is the name of as i mentioned the computer simulation that everyone's plugged into that they experience in reality so yeah what do you what do you kind of make of what that what's trying to, what they're doing with the matrix there what is that supposed to represent um so my reading of it and again i think this is very symptomatic of the time and 
coming to it from that 90s perspective. I definitely just think it's that it, it, it's a metaphor for ideology, I suppose you could say, in the widest sense. Um, basically, mm-hmm. that way that you feel like all the structures of society are set up to make you live in a certain way. And it's you feel like you should be making free choices, but actually when you consider it in some way objectively, you're not really making free choices at all because you've only been offered things that are within the realms of these ideological horizons. And you've not been offered anything that actually allows you to break out of those I kind of, I think of it like train lines. Your your um, life is following these train lines, and the superficial choices mm. that capitalism offers, like which shampoo you want to use, they they can make you feel mm. like you're a free individual, but actually you're trapped within this uh, framework. And when Neo starts to be shown what's beyond the matrix, he starts to have real possibilities become open to him. So that that's definitely my kind of core reading of it that the. The Matrix is ideology. It's corporate capitalism and all the different cultural and quotidian things that are built up around that to make us fit into the models that it needs us to fit into. Yeah, yeah. It's like even even like um, some of the ideas of like uh, yeah, how capitalism offers you freedom in terms of you ha- you have a uh, choice in like what you want to do in terms of work for example like you're free within the job market and work's becoming ever more flexible <laughs> through like zero hour contracts and stuff so you have more and more freedom in the in the way that capitalism thinks about it but obviously like you don't really have a choice of like if you're you need money to live within capitalism so you don't really have a choice uh, superficially you have a choice but you have to get a job to get money and you're going to have a limit to like what job you're able to to get and all this type of thing so um yeah it taps into all those kind of and, and then the social and cultural things that follow on from that the way people will treat you differently dependent on that job or the way that you'll lie to yourself to convince yourself that you're doing well or happy or whatever you know it's it's all of those levels isn't it it's how people treat you and how you lie to yourself i think it's really important to the film as well yeah something that i find interesting about so i i agree with what you're you're saying in terms of like what they're doing with the matrix but within the within the film that the idea of like what the target is in terms of the matrix i think it's quite vague like a lot of the mm-hmm. time in, in some sense that's interesting because so like there's this bit near the beginning where um where neo uh, I think he's talking. I think it's Trinity talking to Neo, and she says, "Like you, uh, you, you think you're looking for Morpheus, basically, who's like the leader of like this kind of um, band of like uh, resistance." And she says, uh, "You're not really looking for him. You're looking for an answer. Uh, what is the Matrix? And there's a sense of something wrong in the world. Like so, he did. There's, so Neo's whole the whole thing with Neo is that he." He just has a kind of intuition that something's not right, that there's something that's that, that uh something he can't put his finger on. That like that that's kind of uh, what kind of leads him down this road. And that and that I think taps into a general anxiety that people have or, or would have had at the time that a, a lot of people intuit that something is wrong with the system that we live in. Um but they may not always have the kind of they might be able, always be able to articulate like what that is. That's why this kind of anxiety can come out in all types of different ways. It can come out with people making weird conspiracy theories about, you know, what the government's trying to... Uh, you know, they have a sense that the government's fucking them over in some way, so they think that they're making them wear masks t- to, like, try and control them and stuff like this. Do you, do you see what I mean? There's kind of... Um, yeah, a lot of people have this feeling that something's wrong, but they can't articulate what it is and neo kind of feels like he represents uh, that totally yeah I th- from what you're saying there about conspiracy theories you know uh, conspiracy theories i think stem from the ways that capitalism makes us think because so my example i always use is okay if you see an advert for a pair of headphones then you have to automatically think to yourself okay there's an ulterior motive here 
this person selling these headphones wants me to buy them. They want to make money off of me. So, I, you know, you have to be able to think critically and to approach these issues in that way. You have to be aware of the ulterior motive and then think to yourself, well, is this worth the benefits that I will get by owning these headphones, given how much money I earn? Mm. You know, you have to balance all those things. So I think a conspiracy theory in a way, it's people are using the logic that, you know, you that any sensible person should develop under capitalism, that scepticism, but they're just kind of using it in this misdirected way to kind of go down a rabbit hole that then there's no evidence for, but then also you can't disprove a negative. So I, so I think that you're right there, that it is that sense of something wrong that comes out in that way, but also in other ways as well that we could speak about, um, you know, the gender readings of the film are obviously... Um, a lot more popular now, I think, since the uh, directors have both come out as trans women and um, now live as trans mm. women. So I think that's another element that, that could be possible as well, that's just something wrong with the way that we're forced to behave and imagine that fantasy of breaking free from those bounds. Yeah, because there's some stuff in there as well, isn't there, explicitly about like um, the, the the way they look in like the real world and then they have like a an image of themselves when they're in the virtual world that they yeah that they kind of that I can't remember what it's called like residual, oh, residual self image yeah yeah there is some explicit stuff on identity and things like that I read somewhere that Switch was allegedly originally meant to be seen as a woman in the real world and as a man in the virtual world or the other way around I think around. that was in the original version of the script and um, I'm not hundred percent mm. sure why that didn't make it to the to the end, a couple of articles I read said, oh, the studio made them cut it. But whether that was because of conservatism or just because it might have been a bit confusing on the screen, how it actually worked. But mm. either way, if that was their intention to begin with, it, that's a really cool idea. And I think even with that actor, that could have potentially worked because the actor that had, they have is quite androgynous. So they could have maybe done something with the presentation there but either way it's a it's a cool idea and and it shows that there is that kind of um yeah that that disjointedness so it's not just like about you and society it's also that disjointedness between you and yourself you've got this idea of what you should be and what you should look like and you're not matching up to it and how that could cause and i'm kind of just wanting to say dysphoria now but you know that that discomfort that mm. Um, I think Morpheus puts it as a, a splinter in your brain that's driving you mad. I think it's a really nice yeah. way to put it. And and I, I think that plays into the the film's construction as an action film. You know, it's that change that Neil goes through from being this kind of he's quite like looks like a bit of a skinny loser living in this dark basement. Uh, he doesn't have any friends. He doesn't have any family. He just like has these transactional relationships with people that want to buy dodgy software off of him it seems um, mm-hmm. he's got a crap job where he gets treated terribly yeah he's kind of a loser and then he turns into this action hero strong I know kung fu guy I think that that uh, reversal it works so well with the action film formula because it's that kind of masculine oh imagine I could be the alpha male and I think that mm. that also works with the transgender reading as well, that it's talking about the limits of masculinity that are actually on offer to people and wouldn't it be great if you could break out of those bonds of this masculinity that a lot of people find. I think disempowering is the wrong word to suppose, uh, constraining and yeah, difficult to reconcile with how you might actually feel on the inside. Yeah, well, let's while we're on that, let's talk a bit more about the the yeah the neo and the kind of chosen one thing. But one thing I just wanted to quickly say before I forget, um, something which I think interesting in terms of like you you said that this was kind of um, like the Matrix comes across as like a, a kind of corporate. Uh, yeah, there's kind of there's very clear ideas of like corporate control and like surveillance and stuff like this. But uh, as I said, I think there's kind of a vagueness there. Like it doesn't. It's very much the Matrix is very much the system, mm-hmm. but what the system is is never named or articulated in any any clear way. Um, we've we've mentioned capitalism multiple times, but the film definitely I, I would suggest does not. I don't think it it makes that clear in any sense. But I, I think what's interesting about that vagueness of the Matrix and what it's trying to get to, it, it's significant to me that this came out in 1999, where 
we were far more um the, the idea that capitalism is the only the only possible system that we can live under is far more under question now than it was in 1999 so for me that that's why it, it kind of makes sense that the matrix is is quite vague as a point of critique and that the characters represent this idea of like having an intuition that something's like well, I, th- I would say why that felt so relatable like at the time um this idea that the, the characters feel like something's wrong but they can't name it because capitalism was very much not being named as like yeah a, a problem like a fundamental problem in our society at that time i would suggest uh, at least not to the extent that it is yeah now. and i think oh there's so many there's so many things that I want to talk about in that topic, yeah. Um, oh, where to even start now? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I think for the start that um, we could point to the use of Rage Against the Machine on the soundtrack and the placement of that song Wake Up that's right at the end. Um, it's in such a powerful position because the song starts playing while we're still in the movie and then Neil kind of flies off in time with the music and we kick in to Wake Up and that's really the feeling that we're being left with and it's the song about how the CIA have organized assassinations of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, and it, so so it's kind of showing you how it's not it's the it's capitalism, but it's also a state apparatus as well uh, that that kind of comes mm. with that to reinforce it. So so I think it does definitely push that line, and maybe I just want to think okay. that way. But um, the other thing that I think is really interesting from what you just said is the fact that the Matrix is set in the contemporary world. So they explain at one point that the machines had tried to give the humans a version of the Matrix that was like a utopia, but the humans kept rejecting the programming. They wouldn't accept that life could be so good, and they were just basically dying, and whole crops were lost for the machines. So instead of having this perfect world pumped into their brains, the machines created a replica of 1999, which they describe as the height of your civilization. Now, I know, obviously, mm. because of the mechanics of filmmaking, that the reason they probably chose 1999 was just because that was the time that it was when it was coming out. Even though it's a nice yeah. year as well, there's that kind of uh, millennium feeling to it also, which is definitely valuable in that yeah, number. Yeah, sure. Um, but yeah, I think that in hindsight now, and again, this is where I'd be interested to think what young, younger people think watching it, because for me, being like a kind of mid-teen at this point, there is obviously like a kind of maybe nostalgia for the 90s. But I think also when you look at geopolitics, for people that were living in the Western world around this time, I think it was in a way quite a good, it was quite a good time. It was a good, quite a good time of stability. You know, the, the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989 had happened quite some time ago. And the 90s were, for you know, a lot of people in the Western world, a period of stability and prosperity. This is before 2001, uh, before the attacks on the World Trade Center. So mm-hmm. that, that's that which then unleashed a whole bunch of new anxieties. I think it kind of is uh, quite a golden age in some ways for a start, for a very obviously you know circumscribed group of people, as I say, middle yeah, sure. class um, or rich people in the Western world. Obviously, different areas and different kind of uh, levels of poverty will differ. But yeah, I, I just wonder what you thought about that. If that was a, do you think it was the height of our civilization? Do, I, I don't think it was the height <laughs> of our civilization, but um, I definitely agree with what you're saying in that. Yeah, the like, like you said, like communism had uh, effectively ended, and that was kind of it. wasn't soon after that that, that kind of the idea that that communism is is uh, resigned to the past and capitalism had won and this was the system now and yeah everybody's capitalist now and like you said the the world trade center thing that hadn't happened it was definitely a uh yeah as you as you say it's like that obviously doesn't apply to everyone but it was it was it was stable for it, it certainly had stability to it capitalism did not feel like it was under threat it did not feel like it was challenged um like as, as a hegemony it was not under threat in in any way so in that sense you could say it was kind of a hype for for that system or ideology I and suppose. a reason for them not to be able to name the problem because it's like well things are kind of fine yes. we can believe in this and 
it's not harming us directly right now so why are we still you know not content i think that's a an important point yeah how do you feel how do you feel about so it can, it can be uh quite um uh heavy-handed sometimes in terms of some of like the symbolism so like i'm thinking of so the the fact that we see humans are like batteries uh like literally batteries like powering the system uh you don't get kind of much more like uh, obvious than that uh we see like humans being grown in fields and when you're thinking of like again when you're thinking of like a system uh like a system producing a certain kind of citizen again it's pretty obvious in terms of Mm -hmm. symbolism the other one I'll mention, because I, I wonder if you might have some stuff to say about it, given kind of some of your research interests, uh, the the idea of like being born. Like, so like when Neo comes out of the Matrix and awakes in his little battery pod, he he's a bit like a baby, basically. He's has no hair. He can't walk. He can't, uh, like none of his muscles work properly. So there's, again the idea that he's awoken and he's been born like it, the symbolism is pretty heavy-handed so yeah, yeah first of all I wondered like just as a personal taste thing like how do you feel about that because I quite like I like genre fiction I like uh I don't mind these kind of very obvious um points of symbolism yeah and I just wondered if you had any thoughts on maybe some of the symbolism uh, there I, I thought giving you pregnancy research you might have something yeah well I'm I'm loving the symbolism I'm relish and all of that stuff because I like things when they're <laughs> I like things when they're over the top sometimes and I think that you know the film doesn't spend a lot of time on this uh, on the kind of uh, well I suppose we could call it the real world it doesn't spend a lot of time there really I don't think um outside of the kind of weird little spaceship no. thing that Marcus and that travel around and we do see a good bit of the inside of their spaceship but we don't see a lot of the machines and we don't see a lot of, it's only a couple of um, sequences. So there's a sequence where Neil is born, and then there's a sequence where Morpheus is kind of giving him this little uh, guided tour of what's happened. Um, yeah. So I love the over the topness of it, and I'm all there for that. Um, as far as the birth thing is concerned, I think this is a it's it's so well done because it's really touching on a lot of uh, almost like harder kind of uh, register there. And um, I love yeah. that combination of. And this is something you find in cyberpunk. So the, the combination of the human and the machine is kind of glorified in cyberpunk. You know, you have people with like really cool martial arts inserts so that they can like claw people with super long claws and they have like inset mirror shades so that they can, you know, see through sunglasses yeah. all the time and they look cool. But then there's also that horror of the machine and the body kind of coming together. I think that the, the best part of the film for that is the scene where there's a human baby that's like got all these ke- uh, mechanical tubes and wires like plugged in towards it and it's saying that the, the babies are being fed from the liquidized dead or something along these lines so you just yeah. see this like clear liquid flowing past the baby and it's like sucking at all these different tubes and things and it's mm. just such good body horror it's so good that, that innocence of birth combined with the violation of these machines that are encroaching on what you might think of as humanity it's really setting up that nature culture battle yeah i think it's a it's really well done for the gross out factor and it it's really cool for like playing on those things to make the film point so it, i suppose in that way that's it you could read that as some kind of conservatism coming through because it's not like oh yeah we should you know open up our bodies and take in all of this mm. machinery it's really anti that um, but mm. it's it's a great spectacle, and I think it works really well in the film. Yeah. Um, one of the things I didn't mention when I was talking about all the stuff the Matrix spawned, there was definitely like um, I remember at least seeing a book. I can't remember if this was like an academic book or like a kind of more popular thing, but I suspect both exist. But there was like the philosophy of the Matrix books and stuff like mm-hmm. that, where people delved so that it did generate a lot of discussion around like what the kind of ideas embedded with it within it were um so there's i mean it has it features uh simulacra and simulation the sean baudrillard book which is where neo keeps his like illegal discs hidden inside 
it uses the phrase um morpheus says welcome to the desert of the real to neo uh when he's kind of showing him the real world uh this is for anyone who doesn't know the desert of the real comes from um jean bolvier i think from that book or maybe he used it somewhere mm-hmm. else before i don't know so yeah i mean this i i was aware that this has been kind of referred to as a, a misappropriation i don't know if that because because like as far as I understand it, Jean Baudrillard, for him, the idea of the desert of the real is that the real's kind of disappeared. Like we have, like you have this idea of like the virtual and the real and his whole thing was like, you think that you're going to look behind the virtual and find the, the real, but that, that's not really how things work anymore. Like the, the, so the, the desert of the real is the idea that there's nothing there. It's not the idea that like the virtual's hiding something. Uh, that's a very simplified explanation but i think that's pretty much right so you, you can correct me if yeah, i'm wrong totally. um, like if, if there's any you know proper bodyguard scholars listening like i am not officially like a bodyguard scholar so i might get things wrong as well I, he was like one of the main he's one he's one of the main theorists i used in my master's dissertation but i have a bad memory so i'm just um I, oh, well i had a recent chapter on him for the the Routledge companion of cyberpunk culture so i have less of an excuse i have worked on him relatively recently right. but um yeah the basis is that um so simulacra and simulation the idea is there's different stages so you have the real um and then a simulation would be something that copies something from the real world and he goes on to then talk about simulacra which is it's like a simulation with no original it's something that it's you might yeah. think that it's meant to represent something, but actually, no, it's just this other thing. It's another level called the hyperreal, um, as he would call it. So in Simulation and Simulacra, he is, he did, he, the desert of the real thing, it comes from a Borges story that's like a paragraph long, so you can easily read it. It's called something like Exactitude in Science. And in this paragraph story, Borges talks about um, an imaginary empire where their cartographers were so skilled they were able to create a map of the empire with a scale of one to one so the map covers the mm. whole of the empire and it represents it exactly but then as as the in the end of the Borges story the map has become worn away in time so that you only find little scraps of the map that still exist in the desert and Baudrillard kind of reverses that and says that our world is maybe more like that exact story but where the actual real landscape has deteriorated and you can only find scraps mm. of the real in the desert and all that's left is the map and then he kind of goes on further and says you know it's even more you know distance from the real than that so provocatively you know i think that his philosophy is well represented by an, a title of another of his books which is that the gulf war didn't happen because he's basically talking about the um, bombing of iraq in the early 90s and he's saying that this was not a war, it was a spectacle created by news media and the state apparatus that pretended to be a war, but actually, I, I don't know if he calls it an atrocity, but that's kind of what I take from the little that I know of his, um, um, his take on it. So, so yeah, so I think that that's, that's what's attracted the Lukowskis to use simulation and simulacra here, that... Um, we could talk about the matrix and the levels of reality, like it's meant to be a simulation of 1999, but then, it, you know, they, they talk at some points in the film about how did the computers know what bananas tasted like, and maybe what we think tastes like a banana, it's nothing like what a real banana tasted like, because they didn't know, and they just programmed something in here. So there's, it is like that copy without an original. And I think that, yeah, there have been accusations that, um, the Matrix has just taken Baudrillard's philosophy as this kind of cool thing to chuck, you know, because the way that mm. Marcus uses Desert of the Real, it doesn't really chime with the way Baudrillard uses it. But I think there's also, um, there's a really good book by Catherine Constable where she talks about this. I think it's called Adapting Oh, I can't remember what it's called now. The Catherine Constable book, anyway, if you search for Matrix Baudrillard, um, it'll come up. And she talks about how it's been read as like an adaptation or a popularization of Baudrillard's philosophy, but that's to kind of underestimate how much the film might add to the philosophy of Baudrillard as well. So I think that maybe now we might take that more seriously because maybe in the 90s it was it was less common to take pop, popular culture and popular fiction 
seriously, but now mm-hmm. you might be able to read that and to think more about, well, how was the film forward in that philosophy? It was definitely bringing it to people's attention, but it was also maybe developing it in certain ways um, that might be interesting to think about. So again, I'm not an expert on that, but I do recommend that people um, check out the Adapting Philosophy, check out the Catherine Constable book if you're interested in that. And also, there's also a book called The Matrix in Theory, and one of the editors is Stefan Herbrechter, and that just talks about how you know we have critical theories in the academy, and they're used in certain ways to try and help us understand the world, but Stefan argues that maybe that what's happened is that theory has become this kind of hyper reality itself. It's a series of ideas that we can only kind of think within, and that having something from outside of theory, like a film, to come and commentate on that could be helpful in helping us to kind of break out of that thinking and to see the blind spots in theory, the things that are maybe not spoken about, the things that cannot be spoken about um, within theoretical ideas of the academy. So, so yeah, so I think that, yeah, you can say that like, oh, well, they didn't really understand it and they just kind of took the buzzwords and, and they did a really good job of that. I love that when Marcus says, welcome to the desert of the real. It's really powerful. Um, it's so cool. cool. And even if they, if that was all we were doing, then I think that they did a really good job of it. But it's there's no harm in thinking, taking it a bit more seriously and questioning whether it could move us beyond things that we have in the academy as well. So Yeah, I don't know if it's true, but I, I read on Wikipedia that it was... Um... Simulacrum and simulation was required reading for the cast. Which, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I just I like I've liked the idea of them all being forced to read it anyway. It's uh, it's fun, but yeah, um, I, I think yeah, even um, even if you think that like the the film's misrepresenting or, or something, some of these ideas like I I, th- I think the film's like really rich territory for interpretation and um, yeah, because of like a lot of these ideas that we're talking about that it taps into. And the and the you know the, the yeah this like the relationship between digitization of our world and technology and all this stuff there's definitely loads to um, this is why I always enjoy reading stuff into popular culture because there's a lot you can do uh, regardless of of how much the 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 film is trying to yeah, say yeah definitely well say something like how well they discovered that or oh, you can you can be hurt in the matrix even though it's not real. Your body makes it real, they say. Like you know, so if Neil gets punched in the face, then he's getting a nosebleed in the so-called real world. Like I think that's a really, like obviously they do that because then there's a sense of jeopardy, and it'd be quite a boring film if it was just like, oh yeah, they're just going to basically have these video games and nothing bad can ever really happen to them. So obviously there's that. Yeah. But in making that kind of literal, I think that they start to show how. You know, in, in our world, it's taken a long time to realise that the internet is a place that has consequences. I remember when people started yeah, yeah, to get yeah. arrested for jokes that they made on Twitter and things like that, and um, or, or threats for that matter. Like, obviously, I'm not saying that like, everything's a joke. But, um, there was a guy that said that he was going to bomb an airport because they wouldn't, they shut because it was snowing and they couldn't go and visit his girlfriend. And he got arrested for it, and it was quite a big deal on Twitter for a while. And then there are the actual threats as well, that people are sometimes, I think, shocked to realise that threatening someone with death or murder on Twitter can then result in a real-life arrest. And obviously that's as it should be. Um, it's, it's been like, you know, like uh, swatting and stuff as well. What's that? Uh, you know, like, if so if uh, somebody... So it's happened a few times, like, when people are live-streaming on Twitch or something people will basically call the police and say that they've got a gun in their house. Oh and So the, the idea that SWAT turns up and breaks into the house like live on stream. I can't remember if somebody's been like killed like that yet uh, or not. And do you know um, what I see? Like, but like, obviously it's incredibly dangerous. You're telling uh, me though, like, my first instinct is to laugh, to think like if you're sitting at home and you're watching the police breaking into somebody's house, how potentially funny that could be because you're like, I've had this ridiculously disproportionate effect in the real world from doing something stupid online. And then obviously your mind then yeah. goes to the tragedy of how terrible that could be, especially, you know, as we've seen these scenes, yeah, especially if they're uh, and that kind of thing, you know, yeah, exactly. Totally. Yeah, it doesn't take like we've seen plenty of times, like how ready the police are to 
uh, yeah, kill people of color. So if you're streaming and you're a person of color and sw- smashing into your house, like yeah, yeah, I don't know. I, I can't remember if there's. I, it wouldn't surprise me if somebody's been like shot or something at, at least through one of these things. But so yeah, there's yeah, definitely the 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 idea. So yeah, as you say, like definitely the idea that the virtual is kind of a separate thing that does not connect to the real world like yeah we can see that there's definitely consequences and they bleed between each other so you yeah i wanted to talk a bit about the agents which i think are one of the coolest aspects of the film uh what do you think of the agents? Uh, i just think that hugo weaving's performance in this film is just amazing every every single line it's also sardonic everything's threatening but like it's just a complete ham sandwich uh yeah i just love the performances mm. but yeah I, I don't know if you want to say a bit more about it I, yeah um yeah so just, uh, again i'll just quickly for, for anyone to know the agents are like um so they they tap into that myth of kind of like the men in black like these guys that turn up in black suits and sunglasses again of course everyone wears sunglasses uh and they're kind of like mysterious government agency vibe um but they are yeah the, the, i like I, the film does that quite a lot which i like it uses like pop culture ideas um in it there's a bit we haven't talked about where it uses like um the idea of deja vu which it explains as when when the when they like change something in the matrix you get like a glitch which is what deja vu is uh that's always fun i like that anyway the, the agents are like um they're computer programs basically so they are they're there to kind of enforce uh when when the when people like morpheus and stuff are turning up they're there to kind of try and eliminate them basically so they are effectively super powered they like the characters in the film they can do stuff that no one else can do like jump across big buildings but but they are nobody's ever they basically run whenever they see them like they're super powerful so they're and they're built up very well i think as like how threatening they are yeah i just think they're a great way of that it tries to represent systemic power um like even the the way they speak in this very um cold and like formal tone but but what i think what, what's really cool about them so that the agents so i've mentioned their computer program but basically they they can become anybody in the film uh in the in the world so like they take over people and they become them so if they they like so if they get shot for example the the person that they took over just dies but then the agents would just take over somebody else and like keep keep coming and keep coming um so we ha- we have this like explained in the there's a, a some like training programs that they have and they explain that a ma- uh, the matrix is uh, morpheus explains that the matrix is a system he says people businessmen teachers carpenters until we freed their mind they're still a part of that system and that makes our makes them our enemy they're so embedded in the system that they will fight to protect it so yeah, th- this idea that an, that an agent can be anyone uh i think is a really powerful representation of like how uh how systems of power works like how ideology works it's like you, the system manif- manifests and ideology manifests through individual people. You can't like just, you can't just like kill it. Like it's, it's uh, because by its very nature, it's systemic power. So it keeps reproducing itself. It's everywhere. Um, it's, it, it's enforced through people. So for example, if you think of like, um, I guess to give a contemporary example, like if you're thinking about, uh, police brutality and racism when you when somebody sees like a a black person existing on the street and decides to call the police like you're you're like reproducing that power like through the fact that you can't just exist as a black person on the street without being like uh yeah without being safe without being threatened you are in you're uh producing that again like through not not just through the police you call the police on them you keep reproducing that power so i think that's a really effective way of showing how that works um we, we get a bit of that idea as well near the beginning the uh neo's boss 
Uh, I think he's just late for work, basically. But Leo, the way that Neo's boss is telling him off, he speaks like the agents do in terms of his cadence and like the, his choice of words. So it's again linking it. I, I guess again here linking it back to the idea we said about like yeah capitalism and, and work and being on on tracks. It's the idea that these these hierarchies he can. They, 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 uh, yeah, he sounds like the agency speaks like them. It's the system, like, manifesting its power through them again. So, yeah, I just think that the agents have, uh, I've said that the film could be quite vague, but I think, like, as a representation of how power works, I think they're one of the best parts of the film. That's a really cool way to read them. Because I was just thinking when they said this thing about how, oh, anyone in the Matrix, they've got such an investment in the system that they can, they're basically your enemy. I thought it was kind of just a cute mm. way for the film to be like, yeah, Neo can kill anyone that he wants in the Matrix and he's still the good guy. It's fine because <laughs> they're evil because they're in the Matrix. But now, yeah. I mean, there's that there's that too for sure because they do kill a lot yeah, of people. Yeah, they do. <laughs> but yeah, I think that's right. It's a, it's showing how the system flows through you. I think that's what's so... Um, I, I suppose, like, I think that in theory, it's you would describe it as a libidinal investment, which I think is quite a good phrase about how your desires are co-opted by capitalism or the system or however you want to think about it. And that that is what like kind of brings you into it. So it's this cognitive dissonance that you can have. Again, you can lie to yourself and say, I'm perfectly happy here, but um, it's partly that just that the system is flowing through you. And you see that really well, I think, with the character, um, I think it's he's called Cypher, the one that betrays them because... Yeah. He's saying that, yeah, ignorance is bliss. I would rather live in the Matrix and eat steak and be rich and, you know, have this false life that involves these creature comforts and just not know about it rather than being awake and then having to do something about it. I think that that's a... Again, he just wants to have those desires met and once they are, then it doesn't really matter about the, the wider ethical situation or the reality or anything. You can just put that out of your mind because you know you're you're not actually in kind of impending discomfort so yeah yeah uh so i wanted to return to something that we 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 touched on earlier which is like neo um the protagonist and this idea that's explicit in the film that he's he's the chosen one like he's like a special prophesized guy who's going to save the world um I just wanted to tell you feel about that because I, I don't think it necessarily uh, feels like quite a conservative idea. And I'm not sure it kind of helps the the politics of the film. Just wondered what you. Yeah, thought about no, that. I just I, I just think it's a kind of um, setting him up as this messiah. It's kind of disappointing because obviously I think that I'd like to see something that's a bit more collective, and we do see. Marcus and his crew working together or whatever, but there's still these like power hierarchies. So yeah, it just feels like it's not quite breaking out of these models of um, hierarchy and yeah, the idea of a chosen one. Oh, I don't know. It, I just I don't think it helps it at all because it's great as a an action movie fantasy kind of thing. Again, that kind of um, masculine dream that I'm special. I'm not just this loser with a crap job. I'm actually important. I think it feeds into that a lot, whereas I think that maybe it would be more helpful to think about how might people as on the whole react or how might people on the whole work towards change. Uh, yeah, it's a, mm. it's a limitation. It, it, um, you, you mentioned this as well. It's like, it, it, I mean, to me, it's like almost um, a complete like nerd fantasy in that he, he so Neo's like, like he's in his shithole, messy flat, He's a nerd on his computer all the time and he doesn't have to do anything. He just, people just show up and like take him and he becomes like the coolest guy ever. <laughs> and he doesn't have to make, he doesn't have to make any effort. And you know, like he just, they put, they like plug him in and, and play discs and he could just know all the martial arts without having to train he it's yeah like this idea of like becoming like a super cool martial arts man savior of the world sunglasses big leather jacket and you don't have to do you don't have to make any you have to make zero yeah, effort like he's and, like, been going for eight hours with all these video game cartridges like yeah that's not that cool <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
yeah to me it feels like it very much yeah, a bit of a nerd fantasy I think yeah I think so I, do you know what it's I suppose it's it's kind of feeding back into those like limits of modern masculinity things that I was talking about before that in the trans region there's something quite cool and um, powerful about that but then I, I think we could also mention how the Matrix has been so important to incels um, you know these online communities of men that hate women and also just want to get women and yeah. um, I think that's quite significant that the biggest the biggest chat room for these people on reddit it was called the red pill because they were talking about that choice that um, Neil's offered between the red pill and the blue pill and the red pill wakes you up and allows you to see that the system you've been living in is false whereas the blue pill allows you to remain passive and to go back to sleep essentially just to accept things and get on with it so they, I think they see it as um, the red pill means that you're waking up to the fact that women control the world in some ways, but then make men out to be predators just because it kind of suits mm. their grand plan to pull the levers of power or something. And women or women are, have the power of sex as well because they will hold it as this thing that... <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, this gift that they will bestow upon those who give them something material in return, basically. So this is this yeah. is one of the main legacies of the Matrix, really. Like its use online is often associated with um, people like this and conspiracy yeah, theories as well. Yeah. So yeah, I think that's worth mentioning that it does totally play into that. Like I'm a loser that lives in a basement and plays video games all the time and does nothing to kind of improve my social standing, but the world owes me something and I should be recognised as a super cool country hero. I think that it definitely that has an appeal for people like that, unfortunately. Yeah. I, I wonder, this is one of the things where I wonder, like, you know, I said at the beginning, like, about how much you have to explain the Matrix because it seems so big. Like, I want, there must be people for who they know, like, the term red-pilling from, like, these um, reactionary online communities and they perhaps don't even know that it came from the matrix i don't know yeah i wonder they, they might be yeah because they've just kind of come into them accidentally maybe there's the the, the memes of mafias though still do the rings though so maybe anyone interested enough would have done a wee, a wee youtube search and watch the clip i don't know it's fascinating yeah. though that like it's had this just this big legacy i think it's great and do you know what i think that yeah like the fact that he's the chosen one I think it's a problem and it plays into these kind of fantasies of I'm special and the world owes me something. But at the same time, I think the reason they've picked that red pill, blue pill scene, it is the it is the most important crux of the film. It's, it probably is the only time when Neil's offered a free choice. Because like we were saying before, you don't really get a real choice under the system of the Matrix, whether that be capitalism mm. or whatever. And then once he's woken up, you know, he's kind of getting fostered by Morpheus and then there's this oracle that tells him about what his destiny would be and there's a whole thing about the fate of the one mm. and everything. That So it kind of is like there's a moment of freedom in the middle of the film where he's offered these two pills. That's the real that's the real heart of the film. The real fantasy is that free choice. And I think that's interesting that it's had so much power for so many different people for so many different reasons because uh, it is the only way. And the the kind of installation of this messianic uh, storyline, I think it just kind of brings the film back onto um, a more traditional story trajectory. So like Joseph Campbell's hero's journey kind of thing, that there's like one hero and he's got to have a quest and everything. It's just kind of pushing us back into that, okay, well, our, our Hollywood film needs to have some kind of uh, climax and some kind of through line. We can't really get that through a more communal awakening of people, probably. So we have to choose him. Um, it is putting it back in a box. But then that's the beauty of a great piece of art sometimes, that there could be just a moment where it gives you that little glimmer of imagine there was something else, even if it then like pulls its punches and you know goes back in the box a little oh, bit. Yeah, sure. Cool. Well, uh, yeah, definitely be fun to talk about The Matrix, uh, a film that, I, I liked a lot at the time and I still think it's a really good action film and yeah as I say I think there's a lot of territory there to uh, be read into I mean obviously this uh I mean we, we've this this film is obviously primarily um a dystopia where we're, we're looking at kind of uh 
the way it might critique or tap into some of our anxieties about the real world. I don't know if maybe at some point uh, I'll uh, have to return to the other Matrix films where we might perhaps get a glimpse of it trying to uh, present something of a utopian vision as well. I don't know. Uh, I'm, of course, talking about Zion, mm-hmm. um, which is only mentioned in this film. Yeah, we never get to but, see uh, it. I think there, yeah, I think in the next films so there's a bit more of Zion's meant to represent more like diversity as well. I think there's more like people of colour there and like I, I haven't rewatched those films for this podcast. I've probably not seen them since they first came out. I didn't particularly enjoy them. But then I think it's also being critiqued because there is a bit of um uh, what would you call it? Like the kind of Zion, it's primarily people of colour and there's kind of like a tribal community there. So I think some people accuse the form of being yeah. a bit like, yeah, it's a bit primitivist and kind of associating people of colour with the primitive and going back to some kind of imagined roots of humanity in a way that's not necessarily ideal. But yeah, it might be interesting to watch the films another time though. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think you're definitely right about that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I can't remember to what extent it it tells you like yeah i don't know if uh money is a thing there or if it's like a communist society or like how their resources are allocated and stuff i don't know if it tells you that i can't remember but maybe maybe uh return to that someday and uh and yeah um but yeah uh thanks for coming on again uh did you want to have you got a book coming out uh, i'm just in the process of pulling together my first proper academic book it's going to be called cyberpunk culture and psychology seeing through the mirror shades and in the book i basically read all of william gibson's novels and talk about how the visual and psychological and the ontological kind of come together in his work so i'm doing that in the moment and the last book i had out was the Routledge companion to cyberpunk culture and the next one's going with the same team is going to be 50 key figures in cyberpunk so there's a couple of little projects in the book yeah so the book should be out next year if anyone's interested so that's 2021 okay cool well that just means you have to come back when when it's almost out yeah definitely yeah we'll think about (laughs) think about what you might want to talk about (laughs) matrix revolution (laughs) Uh, okay yeah um thanks anna it's been fun all right thanks very much paul That is the end of my conversation with Anna. Thank you very much for listening. As I mentioned up top, I think I've only had one review this year. So if you liked it, please um, take a moment to go onto Apple Podcasts, uh, iTunes, give me a review. That'd be amazing. And if you want to hear more from me and support me to keep doing this and do more of it, then head to patreon.com slash utopian horizons. I am working on more stuff so uh as always i'll be back as soon as i can with a new episode thanks again i'll see you soon bye bye